Well, good morning, uh, everybody. It's uh, the first conversation with Agility by Nature for 2021. Um, we start immediately in a UK lockdown, so that sort of has uh, clipped wings yet again, but it's okay. Like all of you out there in podcast world, we're all Zoom warriors. We know how all this works. We know how to connect, don't we? I don't know if we do, actually. Let's find out. Today's guest is an expert in connection, facilitation, and communication, particularly remotely. She is described by Mark Kilby as wonderful. Uh, so the wonderful Judy Reese. How are you, wonderful Judy Reese? I'm very well, thank you. That's very nice of Mark. <laughs> Mark's a great guy. He's just, he uh, he's a lovely guy. And I think he was talking about how he came across different terms for distributed team. I think he came up with the word nebula. And I think you were instrumental in facilitating that process. So, uh, yeah. yeah he, he and I met an agile, uh, distributed agile flock event in Berlin quite a few years ago. Yeah. And it was one of the first agile events I'd uh, attended and spoken at. And I was doing a piece and I'm actually repeating, uh, uh, reprising it or whatever the word is on Saturday for another agile audience doing a piece about the shape of distributed teams right and how you think about your distributed team and its shape makes a significant difference to how you um how you interact with your part your 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 colleagues and oh, I... so in that se session um Mark came up with this idea of nebulae um, but other people would have metaphors of, oh, it's like we're just scattered all over the world, yes, yes. which has a different feeling to it. Or it's like we're all sitting at a table, but it's just, it's a very big table. Yes. It feels yeah. very different. That's really, I was talking to uh, Yuri Malanchenko recently, and he's very big into visual thinking. Um, terrific, terrific coach, um, was based in Ukraine. I think he's in Denmark now. And um, we were talking about using visualization to ch just change the thinking and involve people. And, and, and actually, when you were talking about that, that really resonated with me. Um, and when, you, when you're talking to people, when you get to situate, do you literally, does your mind become visual rather than listening to the words? No. So one of the things that's interesting to me about what you've just said is that you jumped instantly from me talking about the metaphor, the shape metaphors Point, of people's, yes. uh, you know, networks, colleagues, whatever, to visual. Yes. Now, for me personally, there's very little relationship between shape and right. visual. Right. Um, and I, maybe that's unusual, but I don't think it is. Um, a lot of people think in combinations of their senses. So a lot of people now understand that our internal worlds are somehow sensory. Yes. It's like we've got an inner visual, an inner auditory, an yes. inner feeling, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, a colleague, Charles Faulkner, has done some work which suggests there are 21 inner senses, at least. So, so never, never mind all of <laughs> all of that and <laughs> um, for some people the visual sense is so dominant that they find it difficult to imagine that other people can imagine shapes without picturing them without wow. you but lots of people think about shapes in other ways they feel the shapes of things for example they sense where people are in relation to them or they might even hear the shape 
in terms of echo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on. Um, so there are lots and lots of ways of understanding shape other than picturing it. Fair. And yeah. I get really interested in that leap between a metaphor and a visual, but mainly in order to suggest to people that actually the world's more interesting than just visual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to think about my questions differently now. <laughs> I, I can't say how to see this going for you. <laughs> Is this sort of linked to uh, NLP? I know that was something in your, in your background that you got quite interested in NLP. I did get quite interested in NLP. I nowadays don't use much in the way of the ideas from NLP. Um, but that whole piece about do people think internally in pictures, in sounds, in feelings, was one of the first ideas to define NLP and later became very, very mainstream. So mainstream, we don't even bother thinking about it as one of the founding ideas of NLP anymore. Yeah. So when we talk to people like David Snowden, who is a, a bitter and vicious opponent of NLP who describes to pseudoscience and will attack any NLP enthusiast who dares to argue with him on Twitter. I don't think that David Snowden would deny the idea that people have inner senses of seeing him, you know, and it may well be that that had been noticed in multiple places independently. But the people to popularize that idea were the NLP people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's interesting. And the subject that I'm much more of a specialist in rather than NLP, which is clean language, yes. has its very earliest antecedents within NLP. I was actually discussing this, well, I was, I was copied into a discussion on Twitter about the relationship between NLP and clean language. I was busy, so I, I just very quickly said, it's not the case that there is no relationship between NLP and clean language. There is yeah. a relationship. I've often called it a sort of cousin or a, that kind of relationship, but it's even looser than that. David Grove, who created clean language, knew NLP and his work came out of NLP. If it hadn't been for NLP, what David Grove came up with clean language would never have existed. Oh, okay. Um, but it is independent and separate. And clean language, I suppose I better explain now, because we're- I'll ask you, maybe for, for, for the unknowing, what, <laughs> what, how do you describe- uh, It's a precision inquiry technique, a way of finding out what's happening inside somebody's inner world, in their inside, seeing, hearing, feeling, and all the rest of it. Gotcha. And one of the things that's interesting about these precision questions is they're neutral about whether we're asking about seeing, hearing, feeling, or whatever. So we don't insist that people picture something in order to answer the question. Uh, okay. We just accept that people are having some kind of inner experience and we use these quite sophisticated but deceptively simple questions to find out what that inner experience is. Because most people are actually really rubbish about describing their own experience. Because we assume that everyone else is seeing the same world that we are. Yeah. Even when we know that's not true at a rational level, 
we can't help but work to that assumption. It's one of those evolutionarily imposed uh, presuppositions that humans have. So that becomes presumably super interesting if we're, we're talking about you are a manager of a group of people in a company and when you are speaking your worldview is in your head and you assume everybody is on the same page with your worldview so obviously everything you say makes sense mm. but you're saying is uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. and thinking about it from the other point of view can make a very very powerful impact and failing to think about it from the other point of view of course can make an even more powerful impact um wendy sullivan who co-authored the book clean language with me uh, more than 10 years ago now she was from south africa and her brilliant example of a manager getting this wrong was he was doing an all hands talk in south africa um and this is going back probably 15, 20 years, a long time ago. So imagine the kind of audience that that would be. And the central metaphor that this chief executive used in his talk was that of cooking a whole salmon in a dishwasher. <laughs> so I just had the sense of smell of a dishwashing salmon, but also uh, uh, has everyone got a dishwasher? But anyway. Well, obviously, most people in the audience didn't have dishwashers. <laughs> An awful lot of them didn't have electricity. And hardly any of them could have afforded to buy a whole salmon. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't go very well. <laughs> History doesn't relate what, I mean, clearly the point was about, uh, yeah. it's possible to cook a whole salmon in a dishwasher, but it's not actually the purpose of the dishwasher or the best way of cooking the salmon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so we can see why that could come up as a yeah. <laughs> as a central metaphor in an all hands meeting but just how rubbish that could be yeah now take it much smaller take it down to the team level yeah. you think you know your team you think you know well mary lives in chesterfield and uh, james lives in uh, belgium yeah and that's fine you know, there, clearly there are all sorts of cultural differences between those two th people, um, different sex, different age, all these different. And then your head starts to explode when you think how many different things could there be about these two people? So how can we find out what Mary really thinks about this decision we're going to make? How can we find out what James really thinks about this decision? Well, by using some high um acuity questions to ask them to find out yeah. to get them to actually give you more information um it's one of the most important things in terms of developing real team um connection is to create a safe place where people can talk about who they really are and what they really think well the clean language questions it seems can be very powerful in that context because people find that when they're asked these questions, they don't feel judgmental. They don't feel like you're in the wrong. So for example, if you were to ask everybody in your team, how do you picture this team? How do you visualize this team? 
that requires them to do something visual. If, on the other hand, you were to ask them the clean language versions of those same questions, where you, for you, this team is like what? Or what kind of team is this team? Is there anything else about this team? And when the team is like that, does it have a size or a shape? And you find out at a very fundamental level how people are thinking about the team. It was interesting when I was listening to you, there was a moment of stillness as I was listening to you. And I was thinking about if, if I was to do with all the teams I've worked with, if I was to start with a brand new team, to start with those questions, I'm thinking, would it take a certain amount of courage to ask that question? Because the, the potential for people to just go, the tumbleweeds come in as people are digesting that question. Uh, and especially if you're new to using clean language. I was just thinking, is it just something you, you, you get better and better at, but you just have to leap in? It, it's something you need to practice. So there are lots and lots of, uh, as you were saying before we started recording, I've got a load of YouTube videos up there. about. Yes, if yes. you go to my old website, which is called learncleanlanguage.com, it, it's got uh, pictures of me with hair, with no hair, all sorts of uh, <laughs> ancient videos. <laughs> But uh, learncleanlanguage.com is actually just a repository of some playlists of clean language videos. And there you can find some suggestions of how you can get started using clean language. Because really, it's not a case of buttoning yourself up with loads and loads of courage and diving into your whole new team with this, with this new way of doing it without any practice beforehand. Don't recommend that. Right. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> what I strongly recommend is starting by just asking the two most commonly used clean language questions, which are what kind of X and is there anything else about X, where X stands for one or more of the other person's words. What's lovely about trying those questions is that you start to notice how uncomfortable it is for you and for most people to just be asked a simple question to clarify, a non-judgmental question, yeah. to clarify what you're actually saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't ask anywhere near enough questions. There's a, um, there's a cultural thing, particularly in sort of um, more hierarchical organizations, I think, where the assumption that you don't know all the answers you know if you don't know all the answers then you must be low status somehow inadequate etc 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 as we move into agility we acknowledge at a rational level that not everybody knows the answers that's why we're doing experimentation and all that kind of thing but still this assumption of not asking questions survives from the old way of doing things what various agilists have found is that just by setting themselves the challenge of asking a couple of these questions in every meeting, not just with their team, but any meeting, they really start to notice when questions aren't asked that should be. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, okay. So if you imagine, um, in some of the, the highest value places for asking questions, for example, in um, business analysis or where, wherever you're, you're getting your requirements from, Clearly, um, business analysts and user experience people and all those people have done some study of how to ask questions, and they do ask a lot of questions. The clean language questions add a layer of precision mm. at a point where you think you know what they're talking about, but actually you realize you may not. One of my favorite uses was a colleague of mine, Roland Hill, in, uh, in the Netherlands. He was doing a, a project where... Um, two banks, a Dutch bank and a Belgian bank, were merging their software systems. They, the project was already well advanced and Roland just had a, a quick workshop to just clarify a couple of points. We were just on this particular aspect and he'd learned clean language. His wife is uh, well known in the clean language work uh, and uh, she, she'd shared with him and he'd also come and done some studying with us quite soon after that course was this workshop and he thought hang on a moment i think that i know what this jargon word that everybody's banding about means what if i didn't right yeah so he asked the belgian team for you what kind of i don't know what the word was yeah. is that and he asked the dutch team for you what kind of is that and he discovered that they had subtly different understandings of that key term of art within that banking world. And his employers are on re record. We, we wrote up the case study. His employers yeah. are on record as saying that that moment of understanding the misunderstanding, the misunderstanding yeah. Yeah, yeah. actually saved the huge software project from going down in history as one of those disasters. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really really interesting to to notice how asking a question when you think you know what they mean can be just the moment to ask a question and clean language questions can go in just there yeah that's why they're precision that, that's really i remember having a conversation some time ago um and they used the word digital now i find the word digital Complex. I'm not sure I do find it complex, actually. I just find it mysterious because I'm not sure really what it means. And I said, well, and I, I, wish I'd asked, I wish I'd asked a clean language question. I was like, what do you mean by digital? Uh, and I never really got an answer, probably because I asked a very poor question. You know, what do you mean by it? Um, do you think now that think when we hear these pop words come up, digital or e-commerce, whatever, we should be more clear about, well, when people bandy these popular words about, let's get to the bottom of what you think that means. Uh, rather than what you imagine it might mean. So if not to the bottom, at least two or three stages clearer than we had. So uh, Pierre Nice, who's probably been on your podcast, and if not, he probably will. He um, Thank you. I will. Uh, good tip. Operates out of, I think, Heidelberg at the moment. Maybe oh. But uh, anyway, he came across clean language. He got really interested in it and started a project to find out what kind of agile is your agile. Right, yeah. And of course, he very quickly gathered 70 or 100 different answers to what kind of agile is your agile. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, 
so you know agile is clearly a term that we think we know what it means yes. and yet once we just get into the detail we can very quickly discover the differences now the danger of course is if you feel that differences are wrong or bad or difficult then clearly asking clean language questions would be a scary and dangerous thing to do mm. so there's a presupposition underpinning the request to find out the difference which is that difference is okay yeah okay diversity is okay we can manage the fact that everybody thinks slightly differently as long as we know what they think and what seems to happen in teams is once people do start talking about it, you know, what kind of agile or whatever it might be, what kind of experiment, what kind of um, backlog, what kind of sprint, once they start talking about it, of course, there is then a natural human tendency to try and agree. Yeah. And it's again at that point, using clean language questions to keep pushing Keep trying to make sure that diversity is enabled and uh, yeah. opened up is really important. Groupthink just closes things down. Yeah. Get, trying to get people don't need persuading to find a point of agreement. People need persuading to share what they uniquely know, what they uniquely see, what they uniquely think. Um, and when people are willing to share their uniqueness, then you're starting to have the point to um, the point of balance where the team is going to be absolutely brilliant. So one of the reasons that agile teams who've worked together for a long time may be very, very effective, but they may also be very ineffective. If they've degenerated to groupthink, they're probably less effective. Yeah. If they've created the psychological safety within the team where everybody feels really comfortable to say what they really think, they'll be more effective than a newly formed team. That's super interesting. I was aware of the group thing many, many, many years ago. And one of the, the um, solutions to that was, well, put, change the team around a little bit. Mm. Not all the time, but just, just bring a little. And that was the external imposition of a solution. I think about it now. Listening to you, um, what's interesting to me is how self is always suppressed and you're always reaching out to each of the individuals to try and get more and more understanding of their understanding. A lot of managers, perhaps not unreasonably, are asking questions for self. Mm. I know something because somebody's asked me something and I need to deliver something, so I'm not really interested in all your opinions. I really need my answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that a bit of the unlearning that we have to go through or I would have to go through I think both are important mm. so you you I mean perhaps less this year than recently the manager's coach is a thing that comes up yeah yeah manager taking a coaching stance rather than a telling stance yeah, yeah. Um, certainly fits within the agile framework manager or ad scrum master agile coach are almost by definition supposed to hold this non-self frame and be in service of 
the group. Yes. So that journey is a journey that a lot of people listening to this will already be on. Yes. Of how do we balance our own state, our, our own stuff, with the desire to be in service of the group, the team, the organization. And one thing that le learning and practicing clean language has certainly helped me to do is get clarity about which is my stuff and which is their stuff. Um. And to just be clearer about in this situation, I'm wearing this hat. In this situation, let's say it's a, a real emergency. There's a there's a something really catastrophic has happened. I pull on my police type hat and I go right, fire extinguisher, da, 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 yeah, and so on. You g give super clear directions because that's not a time to be asking questions. That's a time to be taking control. Yeah, yeah, got you. But there are not many of those situations in real life. Um, what more often happens is something starts off as being genuinely a crisis and then people stay wearing their police hats. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that certainly happened to me during the last year uh, because we found, our, we found ourselves not just knowing about clean language, but because I'd been teaching clean language online for the last 10 years and running um, clean language events online for the last five, um, events where people were asking questions, where they were doing coaching practice, where they were doing um, highly engaging, highly embodied work with each other, where they were building relationships online. Um, as soon as the first lockdown came, um, we were in high demand to help people do their training online, help their do, them do their events online. And it was brilliant, of course. I'd rather be far too busy than, um, than the other thing. <coughs> and we were being approached by organized because of the, the, um, the, the work we've been doing immediately before the lockdowns with the International Network for Education in Emergencies and with uh, UNICEF and with the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council, a whole bunch of the people who came to us in the early days of lockdown were the kind of people you wouldn't say no to. Right, okay. You don't say no to UNICEF. You don't say no to major education charities in the midst of, midst of the biggest crisis they've ever been in. You don't say no to the World Health Organization. <laughs> no, yeah, I'll get you there. <laughs> At which point you feel you you got. I went into crisis mode. Oh. But what I would have done better to do is after at least the first few weeks of it to take some time out and to ask myself some questions or to get my colleagues to ask me questions to help me build out a more rational, more sensible, more measured approach to managing the situation. So the point I'm making is that everybody, as far as I know, will get caught up in these various dramas at different times. Knowing clean language can help to uh, build a discipline of thinking actually what am i doing here could i ask more questions rather than give more directions yeah, okay. but it's not it, it doesn't provide um the universal answer <laughs> we are human you know we, we learn and, and, and presumably this it was interesting saying uh, ask myself questions or get my team to ask me questions presumably this plays well into mentoring uh and everyone says you know 
I have a mentor, I, w I am a mentor. I wonder if that's true, if they're not using your sort of inquiry and your precision. No, there's, there's always the big debate about um, the distinction between a mentor and a coach. Yes. I went on a project once, a few years ago, and they, want, they wanted volunteer, co volunteer mentors. Okay. And I, I'd been approached by somebody and they said, I said, I can't be a volunteer mentor for a group of teenagers in, in um, Jordan. I don't know anything about being a teenager in Jordan. And it turned out that they meant by mentor the exact opposite of what I meant. Ah. They actually wanted what I thought of as coaches who were content neutral and would ask lots of good questions and do coaching processes with these teenagers. Uh, it turned out to be a brilliant project. But that whole question of what kind of mentor, what kind of coach was absolutely live there. Yeah. So again, if you're, if you found a mentor, what kind of mentor is your mentor? Are they there to coach you, to ask you lots of questions and help you figure out what you want to do? Or are they there to share their experience and tell you all about how they climbed the, the ladder to the top? Yeah, yeah. Or is it some combination of the two? I, I did hear someone, I think she had five mentors, but for very different aspects of mm. her world. Um, talking about the world, and you, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, Zoom, Teams, video conferencing has been around for more than just lockdown, but it's come to the fore because of lockdown. And I know this is an area, how do you really make it a powerful experience, a communication experience? Because clearly the TV screen does rob something of the experience of communication. Mm. What's, what's your, you've had a year of teaching training, but what's your current thinking now creating really strong connection via these devices? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that you can. At okay. the beginning of lockdown, there were so many people who were saying, well, obviously we can't have that kind of conversation online. Yeah. Whatever that kind of conversation was. Good point. Yes, I've said that myself. <laughs> this is not one I want to do by Zoom, I think, but my actual words. Mm. And you can have all those conversations online, as a lot of people have discovered. But there are necessary conditions. One of the things, one of the most important things is a level playing field between the participants in a conversation. And if you've got some people who've got really dodgy internet connections and no quiet place to call from, yeah. that sets up a really big imbalance between the participants. Similar to the imbalance that used to exist if you had a bunch of people in the room together in the office and one or two people remote dialing in on one of those spider phones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Almost impossible for the remote people to get a word in edgeways. Um, simply because of the, the, the lack of a level playing field. So to have those serious conversations, those real conversations, those highly connecting conversations, we need a communication level playing field and we need groups that are small enough to enable people to actually have conversations. Another thing that has happened during lockdown is people invite far too many people to meetings okay. because the limiting factor of the meeting room size has gone away yes of course yes a rather obvious but great point so now anyone can invite anyone to a meeting and any you know anyone can call a meeting there's no physical limit to the number of meetings in your day yeah 
and there's no physical limit to the number of meetings, number of people in each meeting. So people tend to invite anybody who might be interested. And that's a disaster when it comes to building high trust conversations. If you think about it, think about going out for, with a group of your colleagues, 20 colleagues, way back when, when we used to be able to go to a restaurant together. Happy days. How much of the conversation of a, one of those long tables of 20 people eating pizza, how much of the conversation involved the whole 20 all at once with only one person speaking? Typically, it would just be ding, ding, ding. Let me raise a glass. Two minutes out of an entire evening. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the actual conversation happens in twos and threes, maybe fours. As soon as a conversation starts to tip over into five, it will naturally tend to break into two. So when we're having our live online conversations, we need to have that in mind. If we want to have real relationship building conversations, look at doing them in twos and threes. So that's why it's so important to have breakout room facility in, your com in all your meetings. That's why it's so important. That's why Microsoft Teams had to race like crazy and they finally got breakout rooms working just before Christmas for most people, I think. Yeah. Um, Google Meet has managed to get breakout rooms working. And of course, Zoom has had breakout rooms all the time. Indeed. Um, breakout rooms in Zoom were one of the things that made it possible for me to start um, running big events initially for the clean language community because we could have the, 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 the workshop leader could say, set the exercise up. So, right, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and this in practice. I'm going to put you in twos and threes, do the activity, come back. We'll talk about what you found. Okay. Yeah. Now that kind of small, tiny breakout room, twos and threes and short breakout rooms, maybe even as short as three and four minutes. If people have got a specific thing to do or talk about can create amazing results. Um, I did an event for the world bank um, late last year and they wanted to really emphasize the social part of this event. There were about 50 people on it. And what we did, we got this, the speakers, we asked them to limit their remarks to 10 minutes. At the end of 10 minutes, we split the group into twos and threes and asked them to think about and talk about what questions do you have for the speaker? Uh. And what that does is it gets the group talking about what the person just said. Yes. It gets them talking to each other and introducing themselves to each other and starting to think, notice how each other think, which is enough to start a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And then we pulled them back and we gathered up the, the questions using Mentimeter because we didn't want to dominate the, um, the thing with the questions. And we just asked two or three to the speaker and then the rest were taken into a, a further breakout later that people could choose which of the speakers they went to uh, <coughs> really? group with. Yeah. And, and, and that worked rather well as well. So, you know, breakout rooms, it seems so silly that facilitators regard them as important. 
but that's why because real conversations happen in twos and threes yeah um, i mean obviously your, your, your background i mean your early background was as a reporter and then an editor and so i imagine that's quite a good training ground for asking questions but you, you're quite handy with technology as well. I think I saw something recently about you using slides behind you when you're talking. I think it was a new bit of technology you mentioned. Was it mm-hmm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's a good name. You can't forget that one. <laughs> Might not be able to pronounce it. Do, do Are people paying enough attention to getting mastery over the tools they're using uh, and inquiring enough about all these other bits of technology that can make it so much more because PowerPoint slides are boring. Yeah, let's just start. PowerPoint with slides are boring. So, the the thing with technology is not to get caught up with the technology, but to notice what's essential and what's not. So, we all, because nobody was born knowing how to create a PowerPoint slide, we've all learned that technology. Yes, yes. And therefore, there is sunk cost in that technology. Break point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that technology, PowerPoint, people are defaulting to it because they've learned that one. But actually using PowerPoint to dominate the conversation online is a huge mistake. Yeah. Think about how PowerPoint is actually used in the room. It's not to wipe out all the faces. It's a visual aid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things that makes speakers so boring on online, on webinars and online calls of all kinds is that the speaker can't see the audience. They're getting no feedback from the audience. Yeah, yeah. So my strong recommendation is if you possibly can, when you're speaking on, the, on an online call, don't share, your, don't share your slides using the share screen function or yeah. whatever. Find a way to share your slides in some other form, whether that's behind you using a, a digital, uh, a virtual background, or you could put them on Google Slides and say, here's the link if you can follow along on another screen or something. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And set it up so that you can see the group and say to them, they can use speaker view if they want to, but you're, you're not going to be spotlighted. You're going to use gallery view so you can see them. Then you get feedback. You know by looking at your audience whether they've got the point or not. If you've got baffled looks all around, <laughs> then you do explain a bit more. But if everybody's nodding and smiling, move on. Stop repeating yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems so simple, but it's people default to whatever they see everybody else doing. Of course, Humans yeah. are social creatures. That's what we do but pay attention to the people in preference to the technology. Isn't there something in the Agile Manifesto about that? Uh, there might be. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lot about conversations as well. Yeah. <laughs> the real conversations, real people, and things start to shift. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to have every conversation on video in real time. No. A lot of teams working together will do a lot of their work asynchronously by typing by sending each other little voice messages or little video messages yeah. um 
because if all you need to do is pass on the information, a meeting is not the most efficient way of doing that. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. S send them, send them a drawing, photograph the drawing and send that. So, so there are bits of technology that it really is important to get the hang of, but it's not necessarily the bit you think. <laughs> and sometimes it's the easiest things that are most overlooked. So the fact that you can take a photograph with your phone and email it to somebody, most people know that, but if you don't know how to do it, it's a real barrier. And equally, um, if you are on a video call, you don't have to do everything with high tech. Um, yeah. You can hold up a post-it note with a drawing on it yeah. and everybody can see it works really, really well. Yeah. Lo-fi is good for me. Mm. Judy, we're almost out of time. Um, something that struck me when I, there is, uh, for everybody in podcast land, please, on YouTube, there is an enormous, rich scene of wonderful videos, including the... Uh, the lazy Jedi questions, which I think you used earlier. Um, there's a rich theme of your material out there. Everything is gold, well worth watching. Something that occurred to me though, as I was watching all of these videos, is your presence online seems, you seem to almost come out of the screen now. And I don't know how you've managed to do that, but listen to you, you, you the, the energy you managed to push out is quite extraordinary. There's been moments of stillness. Is that just something that comes with practice or is also a certain amount of and i'm thinking some of our more introvert members of people might be interested how can they have that projection i, I identify as an introvert yeah um for me it's been a, a, a challenge to even get on so if you look at some of those early youtube videos i don't recommend it <laughs> you can see how terrified i was i was like a rabbit in the headlights yeah but what i realized as an introvert was if I could get good at this, I might never need to leave the house again. <laughs> <laughs> so the introverts are inheriting the Zoom world. What, what I love about this lockdown world is that if I get peopled out, I can just turn you all off. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So the bits about how do you project yourself on screen is fundamentally it's about good lighting yes. a decent webcam yeah. decent headset or, or other microphone and um, what, whatever headset system yes you um and then occupy your square yeah. make sure that you can be seen centrally yeah okay and i also have trained myself to get my hands up into the into the box i've noticed that um Again, that it's part of increasing your presence on screen. And then having got all of that, in fact, I don't often do it, but I used to do it. I used to turn off my self view on Zoom. Oh, really? So I didn't have to see myself. I, I yeah, I do that. I turn myself. <laughs> it's not a beautiful thing. Uh, I've turned the lights low today because everything was bright and I was looking very yellow. So I needed to sort that out. Um, and, and something you said before, and I thought this was great as well, when we talked oh, some weeks ago, uh, you're about making your making yourself your own agency. Being, mm. And I thought that was fantastic as well. I love that. Um, Julia, I've been really, uh, 
loved everything you said and I wish we had another hour without I, I, I could just sit here and listen to it all week oh yeah yeah but I realize I've got work to do to, yep. to be a better clean language uh practitioner and I think a lot of people I hope are inspired as well to pick up that that matter if they need more help how can they get hold of you I know you've got a fabulous company which also reesemccann.com also has a lot of resources on there and a lot of ways and a lot of training courses in there it looks fantastic but how can they get in touch with you yeah so the place to go is reesemccann.com yep um so that's where you'll find my blog posts and all of that stuff and details you can use the contact form on there the other thing you can get when you're on reesemccann.com is sign up for the link letter that i send out every week yes because that's not just my stuff it's stuff that uh, I find and other people find for me that is high value to anyone who's interested in this kind of space. People, remote, agile, connecting and clean language. Right. So weekly link letter is well worth getting. Um, one, of the place, one of the things you can do which will get you into that system is to download the uh, web events that connect how to guide. Yes. So yes, on the website and sign up for that yeah. you end up on the link letter list um you also get the how-to guide which is high value um you can also find me on the usual places so i'm on linkedin i'm on twitter and i'm on facebook though i'm reducing my use of facebook it's one of my resolutions yeah <laughs> very much reducing mine but, uh, but i'm easy to find on linkedin and easy to find on twitter uh, we'll put links uh, at the bottom of, of, of the write-up. And also, you've written a number of books as well. Um, anyone that you'd like to sort of guide people to at the moment? Um, I think the best one to guide people to is that uh, Web Events That Connect How-To Guide, which is free on the website. Or if you don't want to give me your email address, then you can get it on Kindle. <laughs> oh, well, fabulous. Uh, Judy, thank you so much for your time. Time is precious. Um, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Um, it's been really, really informative. I hope everybody else has enjoyed it. If you need to get hold of me, you can get me at ian.gill at agilitybynature.com or message me on LinkedIn. I'm very happy to respond to everybody's inquiries. And if you would like to be uh, joining me and Judy on Conversation by Agility by Nature, we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, I need to clear up some of the mess my puppy's made and also have another cup of tea. Judy, thank you so much. Is it podcast day all day today for you? or uh... No, I've got a quiet one today. Oh, Catching up after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks very much indeed. Cheers.